Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Pasta, pasta, pasta. She's a familiar face to millions of Americans. Please welcome Lydia. I want to invite you. Lydia's like Madonna. You don't have to say her last name. Action. An icon of Italian food. Lydia became... That icon, Lydia Bastianich, is celebrating 25 years of cooking on public television. The Italian celebrity chef, restaurateur, and award-winning cookbook author has merged food and family to create a wildly successful empire. But the road to success hasn't been an easy one for Bastianich. Her family fled what became communist Yugoslavia after World War II, then lived in a refugee camp in Italy before immigrating to the U.S. and becoming a symbol of the American dream and the Italian-American palette. I'm Deborah Becker, in for Magna Chakrabarty, and this is On Point. This hour, Lydia Bastianich and the art of Italian home cooking. Lydia, welcome to On Point. Oh, thank you, Deborah. What a pleasure being with you. Well, 25 years, Lydia. I mean, what, when you when you think that it's been a quarter century being on television and all the years of cooking and what's happened during that time, how do you reflect on that wild success? You know, it's, it's uh, like life. Uh, it goes fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, but But there's a lot of memories and there's a lot of good things that happen in between in those 25 years. You know, my my growth ever more out in connection with the American public, it's something that's really heartwarming. Being being an immigrant and coming to, a, not speaking the language, coming to a new country, not having family here. You, you know, I remember as a 12-year-old uh, wondering, how are we going to do? Are we going to do okay? Are, are we going to be accepted? And surely enough, you know, we were not only accepted, given this great opportunity, and, uh, you know, I went right in, heads on, head on, I went right in. And uh, what it is, is this wonderful connection and extension of almost a family that I have out there uh, in in whose homes uh, my my uh, essence, my flavors, uh, my smells uh, kind of uh, uh, permeate the homes of these these homes that I might never see. And yet... I am in their homes, and that's a great satisfaction, Deborah. Right, right. But you alluded to the fact that this this was not a smooth, paved road for you, right? So let's tell a little bit of your story in case uh, in case folks don't know. Uh, you were born in 1947. Tell us a little bit about where you were born and why you left. Okay. So if you look at uh, Italy, the boot, in the right-hand side, mm-hmm. across almost from Venice, there's a little peninsula that's called Istria. Mm-hmm. Istria is not Croatia, but it was Italy. Istria and a part of Dalmatia was Italy. And uh, we are Italian, although, although, you know, when you're close to a border, there's different ethnicities. Mm-hmm. And one does speak different languages, and one has these this different uh, uh, ethnical, if you will, influences. But in uh, Italy lost the war in 1944, and then it took about three years for for the Allied forces to decide and the English to decide where the border would go and what would the the winning, uh, which was the newly formed communist Yugoslavia, uh, you know, they expected some terrain and uh, Istria and Dalmatia, the part of Dalmatia was given to the new formed communist Yugoslavia. I was born in 47, so the 
the Paris Peace Treaty was in February of 47. I was born in February of 27. A few days after, I think it was in 28, I was born in the 21st, uh, the actual uh, Paris Treaty delineated the border and what would be given to to Yugoslavia and what will remain under east under Italy and so we we were given to Yugoslavia we were, we kind of uh, uh were, were given away if you will we were there but the border went up and things changed rapidly now i was young i was just born but i, I grew up somewhat uh, because i we lived in eastria until i was 10 mm-hmm. uh, and then my parents decided to you know we needed to go back to Italy and ultimately had to escape. But in those years, I recall, you know, I mean, uh, uh, communism set in, we couldn't speak Italian, we couldn't go to church, they changed our names. And so uh, uh, a lot of things were were, were uh, a bit difficulty, uh, difficult for my family. My mother was a school teacher, my father a mechanic. He he had two little trucks, and they were taken. He was deemed a capitalist, put in in prison. The trucks, uh, for were, that. The trucks were taken because he was deemed a capitalist, right? Exactly, mm, okay. exactly, and and uh, and so uh, uh, you know, food was not all that available. Uh, actually, my mother put my brother and I with my grandmother, maternal grandmother who lived a little bit outside of, uh, now it's Pula, but it was Pola, the big city. Mm. And uh, uh, there, you know, uh, Grandma had chickens and had uh, geese and had uh, pigs and had goats, and she provided the food because food was scarce. So uh, my my growing up, it was was close to family, uh, and maybe even closer because we clung together because of these changes, but uh, it was it was difficult because at home we quietly spoke Italian, out we couldn't speak Italian, mm. and so on. So it was a, a kind of a difficult identity growing up. You know, where am I? What am I doing? Who am I as a person? Mm. And uh, and then ultimately, you know, my parents decided, well, maybe we we need to do something and change this. Now, when the border went down. Part of my family remained in Italy, in Trieste. We had an aunt. And uh, my mother, my brother, and I went to visit the aunt, supposedly uh, just a family visit. They wouldn't let the whole family go. My father had to remain back almost as a hostage. But ultimately, after about two weeks, he escaped the border, literally escaped, and they, they sort of, the dogs chased him and he was shot at. But we reunited in Trieste and became the immigrants. In Italy, yes. And so, yes, the, and then you went to a refugee camp in Italy. So. Well, you know, when so here we were in in Italy. Our names had changed. We didn't have the papers because my father escaped. So, uh, of course, because if if you were caught without papers or whatever, you you were repatriated. Mm-hmm. So my parents went and asked for political asylum, explaining our situation. And uh, they went to, to to the police station, and ultimately, they put us in a camp. We became a refugee with a number, with a name, uh, sort of that that uh, uh, was given to us and then changed. But we stayed in that camp for two years, awaiting for an opportunity because 
my parents decided that uh, maybe we should move on in the world. A place that would take us, maybe the, the places that were open for immigration at that time were, of course, America, Australia, um, uh, Canada. But we were lucky enough to be accepted in America. And, and you, that was... Yeah, when was that, that? When did you come to the U.S.? That was in 1958. So you were 11. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And uh, what was it like then to come to America after <laughs> after all that? Well, it was exciting because, you know, uh, camp is a camp and it did the camp that uh, it's it's now it's a museum. It's called San Saba. So if anybody visits Trieste, they certainly can go. Uh, and it was and a former it. Nazi concentration camp, is that right? It was. Mm-hmm. So it was very dim and very, you can sense, uh, uh, and especially as a young child like that, not understanding, being closed, you know, you couldn't um, go out unless you were given a permission and you were literally closed in there. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, uh, here we, in 1958, uh, Dwight Eisenhower was the president, and he opened immigration for uh, uh, refugees fleeing communism. And uh, I guess we were a young family, and we were given, we were granted the the visa, mm-hmm. and it was very exciting. Uh, you know, but you have Deborah, you have to. We didn't speak the language. We had nobody in the United States, so it's kind of a, the unknown. But when you are uh, eleven, twelve, you know, it was exciting getting out of the camp. We are going. You know, by then, uh, you know, you saw pictures of New York, of America. Hopefully, that one day you will go there. So for my brother and I, my brother. Is three years older than I am, it was very exciting. My parents, I think, in retrospect, had a, a lot of uh, difficulties in, you know, the uncertainty of, of the trip. Right, right. And, and you actually sort of maybe got your start in, in really working in food, right? You started working part-time in a, in a bakery in Queens when you were 14, and it was Walkins bakery owned by Christopher Walken's parents? <laughs> I did, I did. And we're still friends with Christopher. Okay. Uh, and in the special, he came, we had dinner. But um, yes, you see, sort of uh, when way back in Istria, you know, even being with grandma, helping her milk the goat, make the cheese, uh, we, we, we harvested the olives, made the olive oil, the garden. I was always kind of kind of a, a little runner in the kitchen and with food and really kind of seeing food from from how it grows and how you produce it and 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 then uh, in 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 camp actually when I was in camp uh, we I was put in a in a school in a uh, nun school and uh, I they put me in the kitchen even though I was young uh, in the morning in the beginning before school I would clean the potatoes clean the apples and then I came to the United States <clears throat> and uh, uh, I was uh, 14 when I went to uh, we live across the street from Walker's Bakery in Astoria mm-hmm. and uh, I said you know I was kind of was a big girl I said I'm going to try to get a part-time job because you know uh, to bring something uh, a bit a bit of income for the family, but also, uh, you know, to to sort of uh, as a young girl growing up, I needed the stockings, I need things like that, and I said I I need to work a little bit here, and I went, and uh, Mr. Walken, uh, he who he was a, a German immigrant, mm-hmm. and uh, a great baker, and a successful uh, bakery took me on. And so Friday night, Saturday night, and Sundays, I would work. 
And uh, he had his, because uh, Christopher Walken had two other brothers, so there were three brothers. He had the three boys also working on weekends. Mm. And that's how we became friends and we met. And uh, uh, Christopher was was the lively one. Uh, he was, uh, do, do you know, he was, he was in charge of, we still laugh today when I see him, he made a mess all the time. <laughs> stuffing stuffing the, the uh, uh, donuts with jelly, that was his job. Okay, we are talking with Lydia Bastianich about her early days in the food industry. We'll be back after a break. I'm Deborah Becker. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for On Point comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com slash OnPoint today to get 10% off your first month. This is On Point. I'm Deborah Becker. We're talking today with Italian chef Lydia Bastianich, who's celebrating a quarter century of cooking on public television. And Lydia, we were talking about the story of how you became uh, such a celebrated chef. And we got to the point where you were a teenager and you were working at a bakery in New York. But let's jump to your, then you get married, let's jump to opening your first restaurant in New York, an Italian restaurant in 1971. And I'm wondering, did you just to open this restaurant because this was the food that you knew uh, because of your Italian heritage or because Italian-American food was really popular uh, at the time in, in New York? Well, Deborah, it was 1971 that we opened our first restaurant, and it was actually my husband, uh, uh, Felice, who was in the restaurant business. He was an immigrant also and worked, as we called it, in the front of the house and always wanted, dreamed of a little restaurant that he would open. Now, uh, as I went on in school and so my uh, cooking was almost always uh, my my. Uh, extra go-to uh, job and work, and I loved it, and I really, really enjoyed cooking. So, so I, you know, we got married, and uh, I actually already had Joseph, my first child, and of course, you know, family, my mother and my father lived with me in their own little apartment, but so, so I had the opportunity, I said to my husband, I will help you out. You know, this is what I love. I will help you. Uh, but, you know, I wasn't a chef yet at that. You know, I was young. And we hired an Italian-American chef because we looked around at all the menus and what was popular. Italian food was very popular. Americans still love Italian food as, I think, the number one ethnic food. But it was the Italian-American cuisine. It was a cuisine that... You know, uh, you didn't. We didn't cook like that in the regions of Italy. Italy has twenty regions, 
But this Italian-American chef uh, had all the bases of Italian cuisine, but, you know, was Italian-American cuisine. And uh, I decided, well, I had to learn this. So I got in the kitchen with him and became his sous chef. And for 10 years, I kind of worked with him in the kitchen, prepare, cook, and some some outside, some welcoming the people, you know, in and out. But for 10 years, so I really honed my skill. I went also back to school because uh, I was interested in all aspects of, of, of food and uh, the science of it and so on. And and then we would also go back. We went back to, after 10 years, we went back to Italy. Uh, and uh, I would travel around Italy and work with chefs in Italy because I said, you know, I got to get this. Uh, we got to, you know, I got to be good at this. Uh, and we were very successful. Right. So successful that we opened another one. So we had two. And uh, after 10 years, in 1981, we decided to sell both of those and leverage that the profits to open Felidia in 81, where I became the chef. Mm. And that was in uh, 58th Street in New York City. But it wasn't just about cooking, right, Lydia? I mean, you you had to know, obviously, how to run a business, how to run these restaurants, and certainly how to get to where you are now. So it was it was also your business acumen as well as your cooking skills that that allowed well, this to happen, wouldn't you say? Absolutely, you know, and and as uh, it's well aware today, it's not only. Uh, the actual cooking, the the finances, but it's also the marketing and, uh, uh, you know, how do you present yourself and uh, the image and all of that. And, uh, you know, I, um, you know, all of these things, I was curious. So what I didn't know, uh, I, I asked, I got people, consultants on board or people that were successful. I wasn't ashamed to ask or to, to go. I took different classes also in, in marketing. It was, it was strange because I, I realized what one needs uh, to, to, to grow a business. And uh, uh, yes, I had the, the artisanry, shall we say, of the Italian cuisine. But then, uh, you know, I was going to school here as a young uh, uh, immigrant. Uh, what does, did America, America offered the business sense, the marketing sense and all that. So I had kind of the best of two cultures, which I pulled together. And I guess that's part of my my success. Mm. And, and of course, uh, you also had, uh, <laughs> you know, got a start in television, which talk about marketing, right? I mean, that's one <laughs> great way to, <laughs> to market your brand. Yeah. And, and it was really from another celebrity chef, from Julia Child. So tell us, how did you how did you meet her and how did you get on her show? Deborah, it's, you know, Felidia opened in 81. And here I was, this this uh, young woman. Uh, I became a chef because by then, you know, I had enough on them. But I always had assistance. It was never that I was alone, you know, out there. And uh, um, I was open. I loved I would come out of the kitchen. I would talk to my customers. I would accept uh, uh, this this interviews. People, you know how journalists are, don't you, Deborah? Right, a little They're bit. Curious. <laughs> They're curious. <laughs> They're curious and whatever. And so I always, you know, I, I was willing, I was happy to share my story. I wanted America to know, you know, the opportunity that we were given what we, what you know, what we were immigrants that brought this, our culture here and how accepted it was and uh, how, you know, it was getting successful. And at that point, you know, I guess Julia Child heard about it and uh, she came came for dinner and guess with whom? She with with uh, uh, James Beard, the Oy. two of them. Wow. The, 
two big towering right. figures because they were, <laughs> they're both big. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, she wanted to know what risotto was and how it was cooked. And she had it once, then she came back again. And that's how we, we our relationship started. She says, Lydia, you're going to teach me how to do a risotto. And, uh, and she was very inquisitive. She wanted to know. And so we did. We became friends. She came over the house. Uh, we cooked the risotto. Ultimately, she asked me to be on her show. She was doing the MasterChef series right. there with different uh, chefs. And uh, uh, we did two episodes, which were quite successful, well-received. And right. the producer says, you know, Lydia, you're pretty good. How about a show? And she encouraged me and she actually uh, stood by me, uh, kind of telling me how and what uh, is best and whatever. You and know what? This. You know what, Tell Lady? Me. We have a little clip of, of uh, the show with Julia Child, your first television appearance back in 1993. Can I play a little bit of that? Absolutely. Okay, here we go. Let's listen. Lydia's kitchen was filled with the aromas of all this great food. A real Italian family meal right here in the U.S. of A. Everyone gathered around the dinner table having a good time. Three generations and a couple of friends. This is the way to live and to eat. That's the son of the house, Joseph, and the grandmother, Erminia. And here's Felice, Lydia's husband. That, of course, is the late Julia Child talking about Lydia Bastianich and in her first television appearance, right, in 1993. And then you go on to have your own show. I mean, what did it feel like to have, you know, Julia Child in your house uh, in, in that first appearance? You you know, I think sometimes uh, you're uh, naive about different things. And maybe that's the best because, you know, you accept things naturally and the uh, you know there was a real affection for her real admiration which what mm -hmm. for what she did and you know i was so proud of what you know i was doing so it uh, i i it felt good it wasn't that i was kind of a, a, a afraid uh, what ultimately what i was afraid is was of the big studios the tv studios and i asked them to produce it in my home which we did and still to this day the show is produced in my kitchen yeah now the kitchen that Julia Child came to right, remind you. Right. And you, you prefer it that way, I guess. Um, you, go ahead. You know what, Deborah? The, the viewers got used to it. They came into right. my house. And you know, sort of, sort of organically things happened because uh, my daughter lived uh, not too far. My mother was upstairs. The kids came. And so as everybody passed by, you know, a home is a home. For, for the Italians, you know, you're you're not excluded no matter what you do in that home. And the show was going on, the kids, so I, we got the kids involved, we got grandma involved, and everybody kind of fell into place. So it was not only about Italian food and the 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 the, the cooking, the recipe, uh, but it was also about the Italian family, and uh, I think people really related to that. Hmm. And do you think, I mean, I can't imagine the amount of change you've seen, right, in in cooking and food and uh, in your 25 years of cooking on public television. And a lot of folks say uh, the, the palate of Americans has become more sophisticated now, right? Everybody is a so-called foodie now, right? And, and folks know a lot more. Has that influenced your work at all, do you think, Lydia? Oh, absolutely. You know, you're, you're, uh, it's, uh, 
in connection with the heartbeat of your audience, but not only just of the audience that I watch, but also the the food. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I. I Oh, I, I began to revert to the pl- to the place with Grandma, you know, and how authentic food was, and uh, how natural food was was. And in my uh, kind of in those early years of my business, uh, you realize that you know uh, not not much real cooking was being done in the homes with real food. Big industry was feeding America, and and so you know I actually saw that uh, how Americans via television, via journalism, via environmental, uh, uh, you know, uh, worrying about the environment, things have changed. And I think, uh, I always say to all my uh, restaurateur businessmen, uh, how Americans have really changed. They are extremely knowledgeable. They are curious. They research. Everything is, is sort of, you know, finding things is very accessible. So it's it's a, for me, it's a wonderful time kind of going to a place where I kind of started <laughs> almost. And to be part of that, uh, Deborah, you know, to be part of being that that conduit, that instructor, that um, because I the emails that I get, Lydia, you gave me comfort. You you gave me security. You told me that I could do it. I didn't think I could cook. All of these kind of feedbacks that that you that I see that I am instrumental in making the viewers and out there cook. And the cooking is not that complex, especially Italian cooking. Mm. You have good products. You have them in season, and you don't elaborate them too much. And you know you can get a good good meal on the table. Yeah, stick with that, right? I should say, I just have to to tell you, uh, my family, my husband's family, both Italian roots, right? Uh But my family's from the north, right? My husband's family's from the south. Different regions of Italy, Uh right? Different foods, different cooking. But I remember my husband's grandmother saying that a lot of the dishes were at one time called peasant food, right? It was what you could forage and get from your garden, but you would inevitably make it delicious. Would you say that that's sort of your recipe, Linnea? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, going to forage. I used to forage with my grandmother all the time. Springtime, the wild asparagus, the wild spinach, uh, you know, the mushrooms, uh, uh, certainly, you know, the gardening and all of that. So, so uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. It's a simplicity of a cuisine. And it's also a cuisine that respects, you know, respects the not wasting, uh, utilizing. And here is nature that gives you these beautiful gifts, using them uh, to, to nurture ourselves. So all of this is kind of, you know, now it's uh, maybe maybe called environmental planning or whatever. But, you know, to me, I think as a, as a chef, you can, nature can really, uh, if you connect with nature and respect nature, nature really gives back. And the Italian cuisine is, is simple, uh, uh, straightforward. Yes, the courtyard animals, we call it. Uh, you, we don't use big pieces of meat in, in the Italian cuisine, as you would say, rather chicken or a rabbit or something like that, small, that that kind of is environmentally much, makes much more sense. Have you have you had to modify, though, you know, recipes? Have you had to make them different for, for an well, American palate, would you say? Well, you know, in the beginning, uh, when I we, we made the first restaurant, but also uh, for Lydia, I really went back to the regions. So I wanted, I said, okay, the Italian-American cuisine is is what we did for the ten. It was it proved a success. People loved it, and it is a delicious cuisine. But 
in Italy, in the region, the Italian cuisine is different. Mm. So that's what I brought to Felidia. A lot of the regionality, whether it's Arisotto, whether it's the Osobuco, whether it's, uh, you know, all of those 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 uh, um, kind of recipes that are made in the houses of Polenta in the uh, uh, Italian homes. But here we're not known because the cuisine was Italian-American. But then, Deborah, you know, we opened Becco Restaurant on West 46th Street. And there, you know, I realized that, uh, you know, the two cuisine, yes, uh, you know, the Italian regional cuisine and Italian-American. And there we have almost a combination, the importance and how much the Italian-American cuisine is loved. And that is a cuisine of adaptation. So it's a cuisine of the early immigrants at the end of the 1800s when they came, Italian immigrants, and how they cooked with what they found. Because, you know, cooking depends on your ingredients. And they didn't have uh, uh, extra virgin olive oil. They didn't have grana padano. They didn't have prosciutto di parma. So they made do with what they found. And that's how the Italian-American cuisine was born. Hmm. I wonder also, though, Lydia, like how much uh, psychology, right, motivates you when you when you look back at your background, when when food was sometimes scarce, uh, when you want to hold on to an Italian heritage that that may have felt threatened, um, and and when you cooked uh, as as a way to sort of uh, express feeling and community. Um, how much of those things do you think also influenced you? Oh, very much. Uh, so let's go back again when I was with Grandma and uh, we went to Trieste and uh, we remained there as immigrants. I didn't know at the time that I wasn't going to go back because, you know, parents don't tell you these things. Mm. And um, I, I missed uh, tremendously that place, that that country, that my animals, a grandma, I didn't say goodbye to grandma. And on in life, as I was cooking, you know, I, I asked myself, Lydia, what is this passion for this food, especially the food of this region? So I, and, you know, I, I soon realized that that was my recall to a memory, to a place, that food, the smells, the aromas bring back uh, you know, we have a library in our in our uh, I would say uh, uh, storage of memories and food and aromas bring it back. But not not only that, food and aromas, uh, food is nurturing, loving somebody, caring for somebody. You know, when you give somebody food, uh, uh, it, it, you want them well. You want well for them. You want them to 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 nourish, to grow, to to the. So food is a great uh, uh, connector with people in, in many different ways, you know. And uh, uh, as, I, as, I, as I came to America and I realized that the Italian-American food had a message, that the regional Italian food was beginning to have a message because people were traveling a lot and they knew the difference. All right, we're talking with Lydia Bastianich about overseeing what is now her food empire. When we come back, we'll have some recipe recommendations. I'm Deborah Becker. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair. 
a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Deborah Becker. A reminder here, the On Point money ladies, Rana Faruhar and Michelle Singletary, are coming back on the show in the new year to answer your questions about the economy and your finances. Now, economists tell us things are heading in the right direction, unemployment down, inflation is easing. But many Americans say they're not so sure about their own economic futures. So send us your questions or stories for the money ladies about the economy you're living in relative to what's happening in the news. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-353-0683 or record a message in the On Point Vox Pop app. If it's not on your phone already, just search for On Point Vox Pop wherever you get your apps. And when you're in the app, you'll also see that we have an interactive exercise for a show we're working on about the power of meaningful relationships. We look forward to hearing how that goes for you as well. We're speaking right now with celebrated chef Lydia Bastianich, uh, the story of how her family immigrated to the U.S. when she was a child. And in this part of the show, we want to focus on recipes. And it is the holiday season. So the, the traditional Italian... Uh, Christmas Eve feast, the feast of the seven fishes. In some households, it's a tradition on Christmas Eve, and I'm going to be a little selfish here, Lydia. My household is among them, so I have to really start working on this if I'm going to pull this off in a few, in a few days. Um, but let's see. Uh, I've heard a lot of different ideas about why seven fishes, and all of them seem to have some sort of religious significance to them. But do you know why it's seven fishes, Lydia? No, it's either 7 or 13. And Deborah, that is a tradition of southern Italy. Now, you said your family's from the north, so, uh, you know, with time, they might have gotten this tradition here in the States. But in Italy, uh, on the northern part, it doesn't have to be uh, 13 or 7. You need to have the fishes. And some of the fishes are absolutely uh, essential, like bacala. Mm, you know, right. you need to have bacala and then uh, a capitone, which is an eel 
that's another one. And then some form of uh, fried fish where there is the the, the little smelts, Smelts. calamari, uh, and and then, of course, some sort of a a pasta with fish, clam sauce. And again, again, clam sauce is very much uh, from from Naples and from that area, if you you go back to tradition. It's now eaten all over, but of course, and it's one of my favorites, but uh, uh, linguine clam sauce or spaghetti clam sauce south. And north, we make a brodetto. A brodetto, usually with monkfish, skatefish, all these kind of odd fishes, whatever the fishermen said, and polenta. We serve it then. So, so, uh, so what do you do? You make that in a sauce over polenta, tomato sauce over polenta, or how do you do yeah, that? Yeah, you, you make it in a, okay. you know, like you take, let's say monkfish. Mm. Uh, monkfish is a great fish to, to, to cook because it doesn't have the small bones. It has one central bone, and it's kind of gel, kind of gelatinous. All It's one central, you take it right off, or you can cut it like medallions with the bone in the middle, like a little osobuco, if you will. And you cook that with a little bit of onion, a little bit of shallots, you, you, you brown it, with a little bit of flour, tomato paste, bay leaves, uh, a little bit of vinegar and water. And uh, uh, it's it's not all that complicated, but it makes a nice, you know, good olive oil. It makes a nice, rich kind of uh, red sauce mm-hmm. and not very loose. But th- And then you make your polenta separately and you spoon your polenta and you make like a, like a little volcanic uh, 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 tip there where you set your, pol- your, your brodetto with the fish on top of it. And uh-huh. uh, uh, brodetto is always, we, we make it also of cuttlefish. Brodetto can be made almost of any fish, but that's, that's uh, uh, a given for, for, for Christmas Eve. So we need to talk about the, the bacala, actually, because uh, <laughs> so my, is it, I, I have most of these traditions from my husband's family, I will say, which is the South, right? So he was yes. the South. So, so I found it very difficult to to make the bacala and get it the right consistency to make the salad that they used to make, where the bacala was the star, right? Um, but I found a recipe, Lydia, almost a decade ago. Uh, oh. Do you know what recipe I found where you could whip? The bacala? <laughs> make well, it, I don't know. I do it all the time. That's yours. <laughs> I found yours. I've been making yours for 10 years. It's wonderful. So why Is don't it you... working well oh for my you? Because gosh, you know, it's, it's not an easy. It's and... not an easy uh, because uh, uh, the bacala, what you do there is not that you have a sauce. Now you know because you're an expert 10 years. Well, I don't know. But that's a, that's a must for us on Christmas Eve, bacala mantecato. And you can make it out of the salt, salt uh, card and there you have the Soak it, you know, get the salt out out of it. You know, that's important. Mm. You're soaking it just to get the salt out. And then you cook it and then you whip it. You can put it in a processor with some oil, a little bit of garlic, salt and pepper, and you have it. Salt, you have to be careful because it might be salted. I also, we make it with stockafisha. Stockafisha is that bacala that is dry as a board, as a piece of wood. It's air dried. It's not salted, but it's air-dried. And what you have to do then is, I don't know which one you use, but what you have to do with the dryer, I'm, I have mine soaking now in the in the, in the garage. Uh-huh. You have to kind of soak it in water for two, three days, change the water out, and then you cook it. And then you take it off the bones completely. You use skin and all of this flake because it becomes flaky, sort of. And that you put in the food process. Now, mind you, that used to be all beaten with a with a with a with a with a pestle, a wooden pestle. My my the, my grandfather, the men used to do that. But now that you have the food processor, you put this cooked uh, stockafisha and a little bit of garlic, 
little salt and pepper, and then you drizzle in oil slowly. And as the, the, the flakes of this bacala, which once was dry or whatever, sort of open up, disintegrate. It's it's like filaments of of, 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 of of wool or whatever. They open up, they absorb the oil, and they become fluffy and like, you know, a brandad, if you will, mm. a spread. And uh, we we just love it. It must be on our on our Christmas Eve table. And then of course there's always some left over for Christmas Day table. And then it goes into the next week because it's it lasts pretty good. We just love this stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's delicious. So that's that's good. That's a good tip because the hardest thing I think is is choosing the best bacala to buy and mm-hmm. soaking it correctly, right? So. <laughs> Exactly. You have the two different ones and they're different. But if you're going to make it in moisture, in soup, in sauces like tomato sauce from your husband's sides, I'm sure they do it with olives and capers and whatever. And that's the sauce. Then that you need the salted. But also up north near Vicenza, they do bacala, the salted bacala, which you soak and get and then you cook. And then they layer it with onions, sliced potatoes and some cream and butter and and shred the shreds of bacala and bake it in the oven and it's rather simple and it's delicious okay let's talk about eel who who eats eel <laughs> i took that off my menu no one was eating it lydia yeah eel is difficult you have to uh uh you <laughs> you have to be raised on it i'm saying yeah. because eel eel has you know, first of all, it has that 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 very sort of uh, skin that's very gelatinous, and uh, if you make it in a sauce, you, of course you leave the skin on. Uh, although maybe in today's uh, world, it's best to just skin it. But the problem is also that the eel inside has a center bone, but then has a lot of little bones mm. in it throughout. It's not like one. Uh, uh, a bone, a bone off the, off the, uh, the, 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 the center bone. They're all over the, 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 the meat of the. And so you have to. My, my grandmother used to massage it. She used to pick it, pick it up by the head. Uh, once it was, you know, usually somebody in the family would fish one, and then she would milk it down so that the little bones would end up towards the tail. But it's only somewhat effective. There's still little bones, and I think. It makes it makes an extraordinary sauce, uh, a brodetto. Mm-hmm. The eel, the gelatinous part of the of the skin of the eel, makes a delicious brodetto. But it is a little difficult to eat because of the uh, uh, little bones in there. So and the slime. Let's say. Let's just say it. it's a little slime. <laughs> 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 you can, but d- d- skin it, skin it. That will okay. diminish the d- diminish the slime. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll take your word for it. You know, the New York Times cooking section this week says if you want to do the feast of the seven fishes, you don't have to do seven. You can do seven. You have to do seven dishes. You can just put seven types of fish over pasta, <laughs> and you've got it. Is that is that cheating, Lydia? Uh, that's cheating. That's cheating. <laughs> if you're gonna do it, I remember we used to have all kinds of different fish. And again, I repeat, you know, it wasn't seven or eight or it might have been ten but it's it's all uh, it was all different kind of fishes that was the richness of Christmas Eve having and some fried and some in brodetto and some with polenta and uh, and so on down the line you know so so yeah you could make a uh, frutta di mare salad, a salad, and you can put all seven fishes in there. You can put mussels, clams, scallops, shrimps, mm. calamari, uh, octopus. Uh, you you got your seven fishes in there, and you have one dish and you have it made. Uh, but uh, that's that's 
cheating a little bit in my, in my kitchen. <laughs> right, right. But, you know, what if someone doesn't necessarily want fish? Like, what are, what are some other traditional dishes that you might recommend for the holiday? Oh, vegetables. Vegetables, absolutely. You know, pasta with garlic and oil and vegetables, uh, green vegetables, because, you know, you, you're dealing uh, in the wintertime, so you have the whole uh, uh, cruciferous family going, whether it is the salad cabbage, the regular cabbage, the uh, uh, um, the the uh, uh, kales, broccoli di rape. These are all uh, winter vegetables and uh, soups. Soups are you know basis an oil based soup uh, with uh, vegetables, oil based garlic. You know you can throw in an anchovy just for extra extra and vegetables, and you make a pasta. You know a dry pasta or a fresh pasta. Right. We would uh, uh, you know certainly. Or, or or polenta risotto is another another element that you can make with with squash and all of that uh, mushrooms you know also what what you know now you have everything fresh but what what my grandmother had a lot you know she had like dried dried porcinis and all the dry herbs and whatever and she would use that to really flavor uh, the pastas and the vegetables hmm. so do you celebrate with the feast of the seven fishes yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. You do, true. you do. And yeah, actually, actually, Christmas Eve is almost more uh, meaningful than the Christmas Day. Yeah, it's the celebration, the culmination. It's all together and all. But Christmas Eve is more solemn, more uh, spiritual, if you will, for me and I think for my family. Mm. And uh, is it always fried? Always has to be a type of fried fish. Is that right? Yeah, fried fish, uh, you know, yes, yes. It's hard uh, to make that when you have guests coming because it can't sit. You can't make it ahead of time. No, exactly, exactly. But you just you have to prepare yourself, you know, like have it. Uh, the one thing that you could uh, fry and it's okay, it's the, um, the fish like sardines, mm -hmm. like uh, whitings, things that are like a whole fish with the skin and you you leave the bone in there so you could you could uh, fry it nice and crisp and then you can reintroduce it into the oven to some extent i have to i have to relate to you a comment that we're getting on facebook from maria who says she's from argentina argentina uh -huh. And she can relate to a lot of these dishes, polenta, bacala, homemade pasta. She says the best food on earth. So so there are strings of Italian that run through other types of cuisine, I guess you could say. But, but there's a lot of Italians, you know, immigrants that went to Argentina because uh, when we were immigrants, one of the options was also uh, Argentina. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I wonder, when you look back, right, and, and you look at your astronomical success, right, what, what do you credit with, right? What, what do you give credit to for this success? And what advice do you give young people who might be thinking about a similar career path? Uh, let's begin with, with the credit and the, 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 the success of coming to a new country. I think... That even that was something that drove me because uh, going through the camp and I saw my parents and my parents suffered maybe more than we did as children, as youngsters, because we were anticipating this new discovery. They were thinking, you know, we don't speak the language. What's going to happen to the kids? Whatever. So I think that as well as my brother and I, we landed with an eager way to be Americans, to become Americans and to make it happen, to show my parents that their decision, which was a hard decision on their part, going in the world with two young kids, mm. was the right one. 
They gave us this opportunity. So starting from school and then working, uh, uh, I I always, you know, and then uh, the fact of sending back to grandma, you know, also because uh, for them it continued. We used to send packages of food, of rice and whatever. All of this sort of, we shared our uh, American kind of, if you will, welcome with 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 what uh, the relatives that we left back back home behind in in communist Yugoslavia, we used to ship coffee and all of that. That that I think really drove me. But then then you know I loved what I what I did. I loved cooking. It gave me uh, um, a feedback. You know, people loved that you 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 did. Uh, People sit down and ate and ingested this food that you cooked and smiled and said thank you and loved that. I mean, what do you? What more do you want out of that? And that also, uh, the opportunity of economical, you know, growing uh, our uh, position, being able to buy a house, uh, then a better house, and so on down the line. Being, uh, being, uh, and again, as I said, you know, I came here at a good age because I had a good base on the Italian, the richness of the Italian culture. And then I had the education of the American uh, uh, schooling system. And, and that is, you know, the business, the marketing, all of that. So I put those two things together. And, you know, that that's my success. But I think, and what I would tell all of those young people out there, whether they're, certainly if they're immigrant, this is the opportunity. Be, 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 be sincere about it. Roll up your sleeves. Do Work hard, do what you know how to do, what you're passionate about, do it with your heart, but also uh, respect and be grateful and give back at some point uh, in your so. So, you know, if you're, if you're an immigrant, this right. is the opportunity. You've got to work hard. You've got to be true to yourself. You've got to be respect uh, this country because this country sometimes is, is maligned and it really hurts me to see that. Right. It is the best in the world. There's nothing better than here. You know, I certainly proved it. To the young people that are American people, especially to the women, I get a lot of questions about that. Right. You know, I always say, Very invest in yourself. Right. Invest in yourself. Get the best that you can be and then go out there and get it done. All right, Lydia Bastianich. Lydia, give us your traditional sign-off. Tutti. Tutti a tavola a mangiare. All right. Lovely. Lydia Bastianich, chef and host of the cooking show Lydia's Kitchen. She's also subject of the new PBS documentary, 25 Years with Lydia. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Deborah. I've got to get cooking. I'm Deborah Becker. This is On Point.